You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you'll guide us as we talk about liberty, the purpose and the meaning of liberty. And I ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Is there anyone here named, oh, just a minute, Atniel? No Atniel here? I prepared a thought just for him, and he's not even here to hear it. He might still come, that's right. He didn't promise me he would. He didn't even say he would. I just asked him to come. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, I was uh, walking on the mountain when I heard all of the dogs on the mountain making loud noises. If you have a pet dog, you might even know the difference between the excited bark and the angry bark and the sad bark. Yes, and this was the excited bark. That's what I heard, excited barking. And as I came around the corner, I saw six dogs. You know the name of one of them, Jackie, the other ones you've never heard of. And they're all there barking at a banana tree. And on top of it is a mother monkey and her baby. The dogs were so excited because there was no way, nowhere for the mother to go. You know, if you jump off a hardwood, you can jump as far as you can. But you jump off something as soft and spongy as a banana tree, and you're not going to go as far as your legs would normally take you from something hard. Does anyone understand the physics of that? How how the spongy banana tree is just going to absorb your kick, and you're just not going to go very far? And so the dogs just knew, and there wasn't anything nearby anyway. They were going to get some monkey meat, and they were just beside themselves with barking. And then I saw the most amazing thing happen. I saw the mother take her baby and put the baby on top of the banana tree at her feet. She turned, she bent, and she leaped over one of the dogs to the ground, right behind his hind end, and led them all away on a chase. And that little baby crawled down safely, made it right over to the jungle and up to safety. And I've thought about that story a lot of times. I thought, what if the baby had stayed in that tree? I think the dogs would have come back. I think the baby could have wasted his mother's sacrifice. He could have made it worthless. I mean, it was meaningful that she did it, but it could have been worthless. And I think for us that Jesus has already jumped over the dogs. And a lot of us, if we could read each other's minds, a lot of us are still up in that tree and we've known for a long time what we need to do. And we're just sitting there. And my first thought for you is I wish you would just get to safety. Just make haste. We don't want to waste what Jesus is doing. I was walking with my wife. We do that. And uh, this was Indonesia. And I... I saw a man stop his motorcycle beside us and ask us, where are you going? And that's a hard question to answer because the answer is nowhere. We're just walking. We don't know 
I was, that guy on the motorbike asked me where I'm going and I really didn't have an answer. I'd said, we're just walking. And he just couldn't comprehend how two people could be walking for no reason. And so he said, if you don't have somewhere, would you come to my house? And we didn't have any reason not to, so we did. He drove his motorbike about three miles an hour, using his feet to not fall over, and we just followed him to his house. His name is Aub, A-U-B, it's, it's the Islamic version of Job. It's the same person in the, in the Bible, Job. And Aub, uh, I found out, had left Islam already. He had grown up as a Muslim. In Indonesia, you know what's going on with the price of land and houses here, how it's just gone ridiculously high? Like, I inherited a home in November that was valued at 75000 and last week it was valued at 135000 That's in six months. Well, what's going on here that is so ridiculous has been going on in Indonesia for a long time. Price of land there easily a million dollars for an acre. And uh, here, if you're going to lease something, a piece of land or a building, typically the cost of leasing it for eight or nine years would be similar to the cost of buying it. You know, whatever it is, a piece of land or a building, if you think about the leased cost, eight or nine years would be similar to the purchase cost. In Java, it's more than 100 years so that many, many people there just lease instead of buying. I think you understand why. Uh, your building is only going to last 60 years, and so why not, you know, you just lease. Well, I'm trying to help you understand that Aub inherited about half an acre of land, and he was earning about $80 a month. So do you see that compared to what he's earning, his land is a treasure? Can you sort of see that? It's, it's a treasure. And while he was away in the big city working, someone built a mosque on the property adjacent to his, and they encroached. It was a pretty big building, lawn. They encroached one meter onto his property, building the mosque. The mosque wall is one meter into his land. And because of the nature of the laws in Indonesia, you might be able to sue the average person and get your land back, that you are not going to win in a suit against a mosque. That, that, that is a, so they stole from him a slice of land that is worth more than what he could earn in many years of hard work. Can you sort of see it in your head, what's going on? And that's why he left Islam. It's not really a good reason, but <clears throat> I mean, I could imagine that could happen. An Adventist could do that to you. You know what I mean? I, I, I could imagine... That's just not really the best reason, but it was his. So when he left it, he didn't know where to go, and he began to investigate, and he went to a Protestant church, and he didn't find any evidence of God there, and he went to a Catholic church, didn't find any evidence of God there. He went to a Buddhist temple. That didn't do it for him, but when he went to a Hindu temple, he really experienced supernatural. So when I met Aub, he was a Hindu. And I thought, because this, this had happened five years before I met him, this little experience, I thought, what if Aub and I had met five years ago? I think he could be a Seventh-day Adventist today. I think it's just a shame that there are so many Adventists in Michigan 
and so few in the 1040 window? What a beautiful question. If you look at a globe and you look at the areas that are mostly Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, you could draw a box around them and the longitudinal lines that would take in your box would be 10 and 40. It's a section that has very few Christians. Anyway, so Aub didn't have anyone to tell him the truth when he was searching. And by the time I found him, he wasn't searching anymore. People aren't always searching. Once they've really experienced supernatural, they're pretty sure they have the real thing. And so he, he just didn't have any doubts. But his character wasn't... One thing I thought I could leverage, Aub was smoking, like almost every Indonesian man smokes. He was smoking, and I thought I could use it. I said, you know, in my religion, we have victory over that. In your religion, you don't. Maybe it's because there's power in my religion and not in yours. I didn't say it quite like that, but that was definitely the idea. And it seemed to get his interest, but it didn't hold it. And I really, even today, I know him and his family, and I don't see any evidence that he's coming our direction. So how's that for a sad story? Yeah, he's not dead. That's true. I do have some of those stories, too, where they're dead. Um, but I will tell you, Aub's wife is now praying in the name of Jesus. Oh, wow. She never followed him into Hinduism. She stayed in Islam. She really wasn't very impressed with his character. You see, she was supporting the family. He was gardening and producing just enough for eating and and she was working and earning the money that they needed to live off of. And, uh, and I think if she was here and, and you had a private conversation with her, she might even admit that her husband is lazy. I think she might. But she probably wouldn't do it to all of us. Uh, she is coming our direction. She read The Great Controversy. I gave it to her. And it, it's a treasure to her. And so I'm not... I feel bad about Ahu, but I'm so glad that his wife is still around. Mm -hmm. And their daughter, Boney, I'm sure that she was named after an American name, Bonnie, but they didn't know how to pronounce it, and so it became Boney. And I never did tell them what that sounds like in English. <laughs> and, uh, but Boney is a really sweet teenage girl, and she is taking an interest in Christianity, wow. but also she has an interest in... Uh, acting, of being an actress, and that worldly life. And, uh, and you can pray for Boney if you want to pray for a teenage girl whose dad is a Hindu and whose mom is a Muslim becoming a Christian and whose goal in life is to be a movie star. Because that all, you know, there's a real controversy for Boney right now. And if you want to call her Bonnie when you pray, God will know who you're talking about. And uh, one more story, then we'll get to the lecture. These stories are not pointless, but if you don't get any point to them, ask me and I'll tell you. It's that you should move. That's, that, is, that is the point. A young lady named Jerry, J-A-R-I, she was uh, attending, she's Indonesian, but she was attending university in Germany. And while she was there, she was recruited by radical Muslims who realized that she could make a proper successful terrorist. You know, she didn't have a great deal of self-esteem, and she looked intelligent, and so they recruited her, and they made 
made a plan to train her in Afghanistan to carry out some sort of uh, violent action in Germany. This is when she was about 19, 20 years old. And what the great blessing from heaven for Jerry is she got caught. Germany caught her before she did anything, before there were any concrete plans that she could be tied to. So her prison sentence was short. You know, if she had done something, it might have been life, something like that. But because she was caught when she was, her prison sentence was short. And while she was in prison, she became a Seventh-day Adventist. I had nothing to do with that. And I met her in Germany when I was giving a lecture there. And uh, so we made friends and we shared contact information. And then I went back to Malaysia where I was. If you come five minutes from now, there'll be four more of them. <laughs> this guy's taking attendance. I just, I'm learning how it goes here. And uh, Jerry, she did something that was very selfless and risky. She made a series of YouTube videos of herself speaking. She didn't change, she used her real picture and her real voice. It was really her giving her testimony of how she left Islam and became an Adventist. And she put those on YouTube. You understand that that's really dangerous for her. And she did it. Ten points for her. Well, go backwards in time, maybe a dozen years. Uh, there was two teenage friends in uh, Borneo. One was a Christian, one was a Muslim. And the Christian gave his good Muslim buddy a Bible. The buddy's name is named Roji. And Roji had the Bible, and he began to read it. And he found when he would read the Bible, he'd feel peace. He really liked the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you liked the Bible, but Rosie really liked it. And then he got married, and he had a couple children, but he found that he could not support his wife and children on his meager income, and he decided that he would cross the border into Malaysia. Borneo has three countries in it, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. And so he crossed the border into Sarawak, that's part of Malaysia, to get to make a living. And he began making much better money, about uh, the equivalent of $250 a month. Is about what he was making, which was, like, I'm just telling you, that was an improvement of significant amount. And, uh, but he was afraid to take his Bible across the border. He didn't want to get caught as a Muslim with that book. So he left it there in Indonesia. And he'd been working about eight years in Malaysia when he was just missing the Bible so much. And he got the idea to look on YouTube for the Bible. I wouldn't call that a bright idea. But what he found, and when I think about when I think about it, I say it's a miracle from heaven that he ever found Jerry's little videos. It's not like she's famous. It's not like that many people watch them. It's not like they're known and they were posted like 12,000 miles from each other. It's just a miracle, but that's what he stumbled on. He watched all of them and decided he wanted to become a Seventh-day Adventist. But he didn't know any. And he, he made comments on the video that Jerry could read. She used a pseudonym on the video, not her real name. And uh, he wrote her, and she remembered me, and she wrote me, and I flew out to meet Roji. 
bought myself a little ticket and flew to where he was. And people told me, don't do it. It's probably a trap to catch you. We'll never see you again. And, and I just want to talk to you about that for a minute. If you're afraid, I don't know how you can win souls. I don't know how. It's much more, I, I'm much more afraid of being caught in the judgment, not having flown to meet Roji, than I am of getting caught in a trap. Much more. And it wasn't a trap. I met him. He's a searching man. He would have liked to have been baptized by me right there. And frankly, I might have done it. If you think that's ridiculous, because I'm not an ordained elder, you should just read something that, anyway, you can ask me about that later, but I, I might have done it. But he's still smoking, and I won't baptize someone who's still smoking. And so I said to him, I, I said, listen, your smoking shows that you haven't had the experience that you're looking for yet. You still have an experience to have with God. Let's go forward, and I'll shorten the story and tell you that uh, he began keeping the Sabbath before he quit smoking, but when he began keeping the Sabbath, he lost his job in Malaysia. When he lost his job in Malaysia, uh, he also was billed for his visa for, for breach of contract uh, because he didn't keep his promise, you know, to work. And he had no way to pay that. And some people helped me, and I paid that. And uh, he went back, and his family was so angry at him. They're angry at him for two things. One was for now he's broke again, and two for he changed religion. His wife divorced him the first week she found out that he was a Christian. You know, they'd been married already for almost 20 years. The first week, that was it. Uh, it, was, it was a shame. So Roji became a single man. And uh, he ended up in Indonesia witnessing the people in his village, and he overcame tobacco. And we were making a plan to have him come to our school where we would baptize him and train him to be a missionary. And on June 18, 2018, Roji was killed by his family. Oh, no. Because he left Islam. Yeah, it's not too shocking. It's sad, but it's not too shocking. And someone would say to me, well, aren't you sorry that you, you know, got him into that mess? And I would say, no, I'm not. Not sorry at all. I would do it again. And the way I understand the way these things work is that God will not let Roji's blood go to waste. That more will be done ultimately than Roji could have done himself because of his faithfulness to death. So we need more people living in that part of the world, and there's plenty of people here in Michigan. Do you know how I ended up in Malaysia? Can I just tell you that? Yes. I'll tell you, then, then get to the lecture. It was about, about six years ago that I was living on donations. I had lived on them for five years. I still live on them, but anyway. But anyway, I, I, was, I was living on them then, and, uh, and they went from about 2000 a month right down to $300. I was living in Arkansas at that time, and 300 isn't sufficient in this country. You could try it someday. Unless you have good savings, it's not going to work out for you. And, uh, and it wasn't working out for me either. And while I was there perplexed what to do, I got a call from the Michigan Conference inviting me to become a pastor here, which pays better than 300 a month. And I began thinking about that, that the reason I had resigned my job at Washita Hills College, it wasn't because of any disagreement with Washita. 
I like Washington Hills College. I was teaching there for eight years in a row. I enjoyed it the whole time. I resigned because I thought we need more opportunities in other parts of the world, and I wanted to work more in other places. And the thought hit me, if I move to Michigan, I was born here. That makes no sense with why I resigned my job at Washita. That's like backwards. So I contacted someone in Malaysia and asked if they could use some help. And that's how I went there. So when I ask, when I say that you ought to consider moving, that's not like I'm being hypocritical. That's what I'm telling you. you know, I, I, it's my experience. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to look at verse 24. This is one of several places where Muhammad is mentioned in the Bible. Matthew 24, verse 24, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The first idea I want you to catch is that we live in a dangerous age when deception is very powerful. The propaganda machines today are so powerful. When I say propaganda machine, do you know what I mean? Uh, like, if I, could, if I could illustrate it for you, like, so I've been around a bit, and uh, in this part of the world, you have the Chinese propaganda machine. And uh, in this part of the world, you have the Republican uh, propaganda machine and the Democratic uh, machine. And you really have, almost independent of these, but seemingly kind of intersecting right here, you have the big pharma propaganda machine. Mm -hmm. And the, the truth is that when I say propaganda machine, I mean highly skilled, thinking people, full-time working to produce fictitious content to persuade you to think what they want you to think. Yes. That's what I mean. Just a whole bunch of it. And it's such that if you really don't have skills in critical thinking, whichever one of these you tend to be surrounded by is really likely to win you. It's just so good. Good is the... I wish I could think of a better word for that. So effective. Thank you. Yes, so effective. The propaganda machines are amazingly powerful and, and we were warned right here in this verse that there's going to be movements against the truth that could possibly take even very studious persons. The chosen. That's what the elect is, right? The chosen people. Uh, let me look at my notes because I decided I won't have time for everything today. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4 Adventists like to quote verse 1 and 2, and anti-Adventists like to quote verses 3 to 5. And uh, so we're just going to get the whole bit and talk about that for a little bit. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. When you think of demons, you might even think of demons primarily as sin promoters. And demons really are promoters of sin. 
they really are seeking to lead you into selfishness and indulgence. And that really is what demons do. But the main thing that demons have permission to do is lie. When I say permission, I mean I visualize Satan as, as handcuffed. That's how I picture him in my mind. Because I know that one demon could easily kill us all in 30 seconds. That there's just no, there's no way that we could continue meeting at church and doing evangelism and reading our Bibles if demons weren't handcuffed, if they weren't stopped. Demons hate butterflies and songbirds. They would certainly end all their lives if they could, and they just can't. It looks like that the devil is mostly only allowed to whisper in your ear, almost limited to that, unless you make some sort of bargain with him, and then maybe he can open and close windows and turn lights on and off and do a few other meaningless things. But for the most part, he's limited to lying to us. And do you think he might at least do what he can? Yes. Yeah, so he goes really after that. I think he's behind every one of the propaganda machines. Uh, here in this country, you really don't get a lot of this one. But in Malaysia, I get a lot of this one. And uh, it's so interesting to receive it. I think if you received it, some of you would begin to really think that China was a good player on the world, on the world field. And you'd think that America was one of the most nasty, imperialistic, control-freaking nations ever to exist. Which is partly true. But anyway... Uh, you would think it would just be such a different picture than you would get listening to these. The, the Democrat propaganda machine is a little closer to China than the Republican machine. But they're all so different. They have their own agendas that they want to, to push. I thought during the election last year that after November 3, we would get a reprieve from from the constant barrage of angry nonsense. And it really didn't happen. It just continued. And when, when there couldn't be enough drummed up from the election, COVID took over. And the vaccine, and it's still a bunch of anger now. I think probably you know a lot of angry people. And uh, I hope you're not one of those angry people. Yeah, everyone's thoughts. He tries to twist everyone's thoughts all the time. That was a nice way how you said that. Like he has a high level of consistency and persistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just all of, all of us. He works all the time. Look at verse 2. Are you still in 1 Timothy 4? Yeah. Verse 2. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Those four words describe the propaganda machines. That is... I know when I'm reading the propaganda that the man composing it doesn't believe it. I know the person composing it doesn't believe it. It's just an effort to accomplish a goal. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. My wife grew up in a somewhat Adventist home. But she was a young adult when she first learned that white lies are sinful. And I don't know if you've taught yourself and your children and grandchildren, but I hope you will, that the Ninth Commandment is highly significant today. We live in a misinformation age. And uh, 
Do I dare say this? I think I dare. I said this was the big pharma propaganda machine. This is the anti-government propaganda machine. The anti-government propaganda machine is also very strong. The anti-government propaganda machine uh, builds conspiracy theories much quicker than you can dismantle them. It really, I could make up something about the Rothschilds and the Trilateral Commission right now, and it might take you months of hard work to prove that it's not true. Do you understand what I just said? Yeah. That, that the, the liars have a real advantage to the truth seekers when it comes to fact checking. It's just so easy to make stuff up and so hard to prove that it's nonsense. So the propaganda machine, what I want you to know and be aware of is you should not get involved in sharing news about secret plans and plandemics, if you will, and anything that involves secret evil work of higher ups. If you think they're trying to depopulate the planet, for example, trying to get us down to 500 million, like the Guidestones of Georgia say, if you buy into any of this, I wish you would just seal your mouth because of the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What it means practically, it's not only that you should not make up a lie, but it means you should not pass on a rumor if you do not have personal eyewitness evidence. And you don't have personal eyewitness evidence about anything related to the Trilateral Commission. There's nothing about the Georgia Guidestone makers that you have any personal experience with. You just don't have any way to figure out if it's really certainly true or if maybe it's being twisted and used by someone for a, an agenda. You can't figure it out. I'm not telling you that it's necessarily false, though most of what I hear I'm pretty sure is. But, I'm, but I don't have to figure that out. I'm telling you, you can't risk sharing it, even if you think it's probably true, without violating commandment number nine. Someone says, do you mean it's a sin to say it even if it's true? Yeah, I'll, let me say it so you can see it. It's even a, son to, a sin to work on Sunday if you think Sunday is sacred. No. It is. If you think Sunday is sacred. No, uh, yeah, tell me your name again. Simone Let me explain, Simone, because maybe you, you have a hard time to see this. When you do something that you think is rebellious, the rebellion is a sin. When you say to God, I, you want me to go this way, but I'm going this way, that's rebellion. And rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And that's why the conscience is the ultimate authority in anyone's mind. So I don't even want uh, someone who keeps Sunday holy, I don't want them to treat that like a secular day until they are persuaded that the seventh day is the Sabbath. Really, we're held, we need to look at that even in this lecture. That's 1 Corinthians 8. We will look at it before we're done. But um, yeah, I'm taking too long on my introduction, but that is my introduction. So what about inside the Adventist church? Do we have propaganda machines inside the Adventist church? That kind of question is called innuendo. Uh, it, it, it's a kind of question that almost forces you to give the answer that I want. And you should just be aware of people who ask questions like that. 
it, it might be that they're trying to bypass your critical thinking. Can any, do you understand what I just said? To say, do we have propaganda machines inside the Adventist church? Really, what I'm saying is we do, and are you smart enough to see it? And what your pride says, of course I'm smart enough. I'm just trying to help you see kind of the logic of what happens with innuendo. So way back, there was a Dr. John Harvey Kellogg who was one of the most significant men doing good work inside the Adventist church. And you're in Michigan, you've been to Battle Creek, you've seen the federal building there, so you all know more about it than most people, right? How many of you have seen the federal building there? That's I thought. Most people in Michigan have been there. And if you want to learn more, Dave Fiedler's talking about this every day, and you could just learn a big bunch from him. He and I used to be neighbors, you know. We used to live just a few feet from each other. And uh, I invited him to Malaysia. You can pray that he comes. Uh, Dr. Kellogg ended up marrying a Seventh-day Baptist, and maybe because and maybe not because, but somehow he ended up developing an idea that God is a is an intelligent, powerful, loving force that's everywhere. Kind of like that. And yeah, kind of like that. And then he got rebuked strongly by Ellen White, and he really modified his ideas, but not sufficiently. He modified them to believe that the Father and the Son were literal beings, but the Spirit was that intelligent, loving force that was everywhere. Do you see that this is a modification, but not a, not a great change in the whole thing? And it wasn't a sufficient modification, and she never did cease her opposition to his teachings, because as soon as you think of God as other than a personal being, you can make idols out of lots of things. And... Uh, yeah, if you think God is inside of you when he isn't, that can lead to all kinds of evil. And so this was undermining the whole idea. Ellen White called what happened around this time the alpha of apostasy. And when I look at the alpha, what I see is that Dr. Kellogg was teaching wonderful truths about anatomy and physiology and health, beautiful truths about lifestyle, and most fundamental Adventist teachings and one serious idea that undermined the whole system. So I come today, and I think there have been a series of men who've been doing the same thing in Adventism today, and in a group this size, I bet there's some of you who really like them. One of the first ones in recent history was Graham Maxwell. And following him were the Doctors Cole there in Loma Linda. And following them, well, most recently, Timothy Jennings. And uh, let me just explain to you what I'm talking. Now, I see lots of blank looks, like you've never even heard of any of those people. But let me just talk about it briefly. What you find, what I find, I shouldn't say what you find, what I find, among these men is a great deal of knowledge about psychology and Adventist teachings and a love for sharing these things combined with a serious 
misunderstanding that takes away the force of the second and third angel's messages and the first, because the judgment's in the first, that really undermines all three of the first, second, and third angel's messages. Let me just get to it. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Some of you are saying, well, what is it? What are they teaching? What is it? Like you're just leaving us up in the air. I'm going to show you the truth and then tell you the contrast. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 25 is a COVID verse. Maybe you know verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. That means encouraging, not rebuking. Encouraging, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see it the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This verse isn't about what we call the unpardonable sin. It's simply about willful sin. And what it says about willful sin is that if you consecrate your life to Jesus this morning, repent of your sins and accept Jesus by faith, but then this afternoon you do something you know is wrong, your consecration has been canceled. That's what the verse says. Did you see what it says? If we sin, what's the, ad, what's the adverb? You know that word, right? Willfully. You knew it, you did it anyway. That, that's willfully. There remains no more, there's no more sacrifice for sins because you, well, it's going to tell us what we did. Verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. You felt that probably at one point or another and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses, Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore, the King James says, worse in the New King James, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he, will he be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and has insulted the spirit of grace. What does the verse say? It says that when you sin willfully, you're very unkind to Jesus. When I sin, will, when I sin willfully, knowing how Jesus paid for my sin, that is very unkind. It is worse than a punch or a slap. It's very unkind. And if you ever get this lie in your ear that says that you can just walk away from God and, and be just a good citizen and, and uh, not be harmful and hurtful and you'll just be a good person, I just want you to know that there is nothing good about someone that slaps Jesus every day. Nothing good about someone who, who hurts him like that. You can't be a good person and not follow him. Do you see what the verse says? You've counted the blood of what? Wherewith you were sanctified. This isn't speaking of your cousins that have never been believers. It's not speaking of them at all. It's speaking about us who have been changed by the experience of being with Jesus. So there's something in the universe called justice. What is justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. Maybe if Jesus had never died for our sins, 
there would also never be a resurrection. I think if Jesus had never died for our sins, that we would not be held to account because there would be no hope for us to escape. Probably we would have all have just died and that would have been it. But Jesus has died. And for that reason, everyone is resurrected because of Jesus. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. In Christ, all are resurrected, the lost and the saved. It's both because we all have something to face. Because of him, there's hope. And hope means that there's responsibility. And responsibility means that there's accountability. Could you follow the logic of those three ideas? Hope brings responsibility. Responsibility brings accountability. How much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who is counted? So what these men that I mentioned have been teaching is a perversion of a beautiful truth. Let me say the truth first. The truth is that God is just. He doesn't torture anyone. He punishes them with pain that exactly matches what they deserve. There's nothing vindictive, nothing angry, nothing revenge-like in the sentence that is given in the investigative judgment. You know, here, here does Michigan have a, a death penalty? Not. So when you have a judge here in Michigan that sentences someone to life in prison without parole because of the terrible crimes they have committed, ideally, he doesn't do this out of any spite or anger. Ideally, he does it because he's trying to follow the sentencing guidelines that are, exist in this state for the type of crime that was committed. The judge, judges are not supposed to sentence on the basis of their passions, right? And it isn't the victim that gives the sentence. That, that wouldn't work out well in terms of justice. Victims might overdo it. What happens, the Bible is very clear about this, that we are punished according to our works. Or maybe rewarded is a better word for you. Have you ever wondered how it is that you can get rewarded for your works? That should be a bit mysterious. So let me explain it. It's relevant to this whole bit. So you owe God one whole life. That's how much we owe. We didn't make ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. So as soon as you're born, you owe God a life, but you owe it in installments. You pay each second as it comes. And, and what you owe him, and if you didn't die, you would owe him an eternity of faithfulness. That's what you would owe. But as it is, you owe one whole life. And uh, as soon as you commit your first sin, which according to the Bible, it happens quite early. As soon as you commit your first sin, you are now hopelessly in debt because what you owe him is the rest of your life and you already have defaulted on what you've owed for the, your past life so that you have no way you can ever pay back. That is, it will never happen that living a good life will pay for a bad life. We have no way that we can pay for our sins. Right? I hope you agree. 
If you don't agree, you can see me afterwards and I'll do my best to help you. <laughs> there is, we can't pay. What Jesus did is Jesus came to earth and he lived one whole life without sinning. But there was a big difference between Jesus and us. Jesus wasn't created. Consequently, Jesus didn't owe anything to the Father. So when Jesus lived one great life, the Father owed Jesus a lot. Just like if someone comes to work for you and works for you for many decades, you will owe them a lot. But if they already owed you and they're just paying off their debt, then what, how much they owe you might get smaller and smaller over time. But in our case, what we owe never gets smaller because, because we owe the next second just as well as we owed the last second. So we just never can pay anything. Jesus earned a whole life of righteousness, and what he offered to do is to credit it to our account. This is why the righteousness that is credited to us in the judgment is not one that we've worked out. It wasn't woven here on earth. It is a gift. We don't earn it in any sense. But as soon as that happens in the judgment, our sins are blotted out. And when you blot out our sins, what you're left with are little sections of our life when we did good things. You know, those sections of life when we did good things, they really weren't too special. We owed our life to God anyway. But now our entire debt is paid. And that makes these extra. And that's why we get rewarded according to our works. Does that make sense to anybody? They're extra. And that's why we get rewarded according to our works. But as soon as you think that God owes you for those things, you've just really missed it. There isn't any owing. Never can be any owing. So maybe what you're asking or saying is that the good things that we've done weren't done on our own power. But they were done with our own will. And that is what God is looking for. What we owed him here was a submitted will the whole time. We didn't really owe him power that we didn't have, but we owed him our will. So God does accept that. And he literally does reward us. He says, enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Because why? Because you've done well. So yeah, it's not that God owes us for what he's done in us, but he does pay us for what we permitted him to do. It's just very good. It's, it's why people will, why we'll cast our crowns at his feet. It's not like anyone's going to feel like, oh boy, oh boy, I did a good job. Yeah, not like that. So the truth is that those that are lost, God is not going to burn them in hell forever. If you grew up as an Adventist, you probably don't understand the power of that truth. I have a man living in my house right now, an Airbnb guest. And uh, I, when I signed up for Airbnb, I thought a lot of people would come for one or two nights because that's what I do in hotels every now and again. But it's not like that, I tell you. The next one coming in about a week is going to be there for seven months. And uh, it's, not, it's just so different than I expected. But anyway, Micah's been with me for a month already, and Micah is an atheist. 
But he grew up as an evangelical going to Christian schools. And the thing, one of the things that threw him right off the track was an eternal burning hell. He just couldn't harmonize that with anything else he was hearing about God. Uh, so you don't really understand maybe how valuable the truth is, but it's quite incredible to learn it. Is there anyone here that learned it midlife and found out that there was no eternal? Was it a pretty nice thing to figure out? Yeah, especially if you think one of your relatives is in hell. That, that's just a really great thing to, to figure out that, it's, that they're not going to be burning for billions of years. And um, the truth. So what's the error? The error is that not only is God not going to burn people in hell forever, but there's not even going to be, God isn't even going to execute justice and punish those that are lost by having them burn for seconds or minutes or hours or days. He's just not going to execute the wicked. And uh, someone would say to me, oh, it's semantics. That these people would say the death happens naturally and you say God causes it. And I just want to say that's not semantics. Because random processes are not fair. Some people who do very wrong die painlessly. Some who are innocent die painfully. Natural consequences are not fair. The judgment is justice. It's fair. And that's why it's not natural. It's God doing what is exactly right. You can't have Satan do it, that's not fair. You can't have nature do it, that's not fair. But God does it, and that's fair. So that's one thing. But the, the biggest issue that I see that's at the basis of this that makes me, makes me really worried about it is that to come to this conclusion, you have to believe that many statements of prophets aren't accurate. Yes, you, ha you have to come to a conclusion that you just can't take it the way the prophets intended it to be understood, that you just can't read it the way it says. That is the devil. And if you can follow this idea, if God doesn't punish sin, then Jesus didn't die for our sins. If Jesus didn't die for our sins then what I'm teaching you about the gospel is really dangerous error. But I'm telling you, he did. If you will, he jumped over the dogs. He really did sacrifice himself, how does it say, as a ransom for many. That's the way it says in the gospels. He gave himself a ransom for many. That, that blood of Jesus that paid for our sins paid for our debt that we owed because we didn't live a whole life of holiness. So, so what that man I mentioned at the beginning, when he sent me a link to Timothy Jennings, not knowing that uh, I consider Timothy Jennings to be one of the most dangerous persons on the earth today. And uh, if you or your friends are inclined to think that what he teaches is good or safe, I would encourage you to visit my personal website, Bible DOC. That stands for document, not doctor. I have no degree. BibleDoc.org. And look for an article on Tim Jennings. There, I'm done with that.
I mention him particularly here because Tim and I teach some ideas that sound so similar and might even be the same. For example, the idea that God's, God's entire program of the universe operates on the basis of love and faith, love and trust, if you will. Well, that's true. It's true that God is working to build up love and trust. And I only have four minutes for this, and I really want to develop it. I'll start, and then after the break, I'll finish. Do you know the difference between a threat and a warning? It might be hard to define, but they have something to do with the motive of the one who's communicating. A, a threat is coercion. It's my saying, do what I want you to do, or I'm going to do something. A threat is like that. A warning is a desire of my part to save you and to help you escape from danger. I'm saying if you do what you're doing or, or do what you might do, it's going to end in disaster. Warnings and threats are quite different in how they relate, how they affect us emotionally. If you threaten me, I resent it. If you warn me, I love you. Can you hear the difference in the two? So, if I take the warnings of the Bible and call them threats, I really change their power to affect people's character. They can move from a powerful creator of love to a powerful creator of animosity. So that how we how we frame things in this particular issue, whether we frame them as a threat or as a warning, makes all the difference in the world. So what Jennings does is he frames these things as threats and then says God would never do that. What I say is these are warnings, and thank God he does it. Can you hear the difference in the two? A threat or a warning, well, it goes a step further. If God did overpower us, even his warnings would have the effect of threats. How can I illustrate it? So if I uh, have a pistol in a holder right here, and I come up to you, and I pull out the pistol, and I cock it, and I don't point it at you and don't threaten you, but I say, now you do such and such. Even though I don't say anything or point it, he's probably going to do it. Don't you think what I say? He's probably going to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the gun there itself is sort of like a threat. Can you see that it can be a threat without any words? And the threat... He might obey me, but I really doubt he's going to like me for it. I'm trying to explain to you why God doesn't overpower us. He gives the warnings in such a way that it's very easy to dismiss them. It's very easy to disbelieve them. He purposefully gives us the warnings in such a way that we don't even take them serious unless we trust him. It's a miraculous, genius effort because if he showed any supernatural power, 
then we would certainly accept his warnings, but we would take them as a threat and they would prevent the growth of love and faith. So one of the things that, my time is up, one of the things that people are doing that is dangerous is they ask the question, who killed Jesus? Did the Father kill Jesus? Did Satan kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? And I just want to answer that for you on the basis of John chapter 10. Jesus said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received from the Father, but the verse before that says, no man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. So if the question is who killed Jesus, the answer is none of the above. Jesus voluntarily sacrificed himself. If it wasn't a voluntary sacrifice, then there wouldn't be any justice in it. The reason that there's justice in it is because Jesus is the creator. As the creator, he's the one who gave us the key to start living. It's as if he's the one who said, here's your life, now make good choices. And now we made bad choices. And so whose fault is it that we made bad choices? Well, it's our fault, but it's because he gave us life. It's his responsibility. He gave us an opportunity that he didn't have to give us. So it could be we could pay it ourselves because we were evil, or he could pay it because he gave us the chance. It's justice either way. It's why no angel could pay. Only Jesus could pay because he is the creator. Jesus gave us life. Then he paid. It was justice to take our place. I'm so thankful for that. And beware of anyone who robs you of that gospel. It's a terrible thing to lose and it's a terrible time now to lose it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would help us as we try to navigate a terrible, dangerous time. Would you please do it for your own sake? I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.